12. We just read Psalm 41, verse 9. Well, really, the whole chapter, Psalm 41. And that was David bemoaning the fact that, yes, God is with him, but that didn't make, mean that his life was going easily. That he actually had a lot of trials and conflict in his life, including his best friends betraying him. His most trusted acquaintance, Ahithophel, a priest who had been loyal to David his entire life, was the one who partnered with Absalom, eating in his table and then turning and joining the enemy. And it broke his heart. And God and his sovereign purposes throughout the entire Old Testament is orchestrating history in such a way to where when Jesus comes, you see all those patterns being fulfilled in Christ. If we're going to ask the question, how did Jesus die? There's kind of two different ways we could answer that. Are we answering it in, as God and his purposes and what he's doing in the world? Or what people are trying to do? Those are two different answers. And they don't contradict one another. But they, they complement one another. That we see God is always at work in history, even using sinners to accomplish his will. We're going to ask that question of how did Jesus die? The sad reality that we saw last week is because of greed. Because one of his inner circle, Judas, a disciple, not just a disciple, not a simple follower, but someone who was appointed by Christ in Mark chapter 3, to have the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the good news that the kingdom of God is near. Someone who had the privileges of preaching the gospel and seeing people follow Christ. It's that individual who didn't see Jesus' worth and betrayed him for money, selling him for 30 silver coins. And we're continuing Zach's story when we pick up as Jesus sets up for the Passover festival. We're now on Thursday, really into Friday of this last day of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So let's read verse 12 of chapter 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. 
And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is some heavy hitting stuff, isn't it? If we ask that question of how did Jesus die, it's because of a betrayal. If anything was going to make you question whether or not Jesus was in control of his life, wouldn't you think it would be this? If you were inviting someone over to dinner who you knew by the end of the night would kill you, wouldn't that stop you from inviting that person over? If you knew that that person, who is your friend even currently, was one day going to murder you, wouldn't you just cut the friendship short? Wouldn't you just continue on with life? Wouldn't you not invest in that person with friendship? Wouldn't you not make that person in charge of the money? If anything's going to cause you to kind of question Jesus' level of control over his life and the circumstances of it, this would be an important moment to focus on. But the reality is, is what we see in this text, oddly enough, is just how in control Jesus is. The foresight he has, the knowledge that he has of the circumstances, and his even submission to what is written about him. What we see is a man who's absolutely in control. We know that Jesus has been predicting his death for a long time now. Jesus, in his own understanding of his ministry from the very beginning, knew why he came. His mission is unlike any of our mission in life. Or at least it should be unlike any of our mission in life. Jesus' mission in life was to die a brutal death, to be betrayed. We can ask, when we ask that question, why, we get to those two realities. We get to the human level, human perception on what's going on, but then we also, if we ask that question and know who's really in charge, it's going to cause us to answer a really important question of God's sovereignty 
of what God's control looks like when we say that God is all-sovereign and all-powerful. You see, this is an interesting setup. But I have three Ps in here. I don't have three Ps, unfortunately, in the outline. But this is a predestined Passover preparations. And the word that I'm focusing on here is the predestined part. It's an uncomfortable truth. But when we see who we're trusting in, who's predestining the world, that should be more of comfort, especially when we look at how Jesus interacts with this. We're looking at basically how does Jesus or how does God predestine things? Pre being before, destined meaning the destiny. That God, when we talk about predestination, by the way, a biblical word that Paul uses a lot, especially if you read the book of Ephesians and Romans. That God has a plan before it happens, knows a specific end, a specific future that will happen. And if we look at this, we could just look at the very first one. It's that fact that God predestined all the details of life. God predestines all the details of life. Why do I say that? Well, first thing is that very that verse, verse 16, is kind of the of fundamental importance in these first few verses. That the disciples found it just as he had told them. This has happened already in a previous occurrence. Jesus at the triumphal entry, when he finally made his announcement of who he was as the Messiah to the city of Jerusalem. Go back sometime, read Mark verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and you see that he grabs two of his disciples to go in the city. He tells them that they're going to walk in down this street. They're going to find a colt, a young donkey tied up on this door. That donkey has never been ridden before. And they're to respond with a very specific statement that then the people will respond and let them go. The, the disciples follow those orders and it happens just as Jesus said it would happen. And if you're wondering, if, why would he even need to go through all this? Did you notice that in verse 12, the disciples said to Jesus and asked him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? There's a million people in this city right now. I don't know about you, but one of my sin tendencies is to procrastination. And if you wait till the last second to book your hotel, chances are it's going to be packed and filled, especially in a city that normally has anywhere like 25, 50,000. The city was probably already booked. The disciples don't know what's going on. And they're asking Jesus. And there's a certain level of secrecy that's necessary here. You see, Jesus is exercising this control here, not letting them know where they're going to be, in part because, as we said last week, people are trying to kill him. 
John chapter 11, verse 57, said that the chief priests and Pharisees had already given orders to the city that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. And they were looking for an opportunity. But in the Pharisees' minds, they were going to try to wait until after the Passover festival had already dispersed to not possibly cause a riot. Arrest him secretly, maybe in the middle of dinner. Bring him in, wait until everyone has left before they kill him. But Jesus is in control of all the circumstances of this event. Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. And it might not sound odd to you that a man would be carrying a water, a jar of water. But that was something that an activity that usually women do. So when you walked into the city and saw that, that would have caught your eye. Just like a donkey tied to the door outside in the street. And they were to come up, follow that person, and that person was going to own a home. That person would have a furnished guest room, which would have been pretty typical for travelers to have. People would have little inns, setups for the Passover celebration that you could just rent their room and prepare it up in that room. And people think because of this that Jesus probably just prearranged this and just didn't tell his disciples. But if that was the case, it wouldn't be something odd and it wouldn't be something to include in the text. That would be like including every time they get lunch. It's just not an event. It's nothing atypical. The interesting thing is they found it just as they, just as Jesus had said. You see, when we think about this, think about what makes prophecy possible. What would it take to be a prophet and to know the future? Think of all the numerous and really incalculable variables and contingencies that had to take place even for this simple activity of this guy having a spare room that's free set up for the Passover and carrying a jar of water. In that guy's life, he probably just had the room open. Maybe he had a cancellation, which would require that person, whoever canceled on it, would then have to have some sort of unfortunate incident. Maybe his cart's wheel fell off and he had to take a, a detour and is arriving to the festival late. His wife maybe got sick that afternoon and asked his, his fa- her spouse, hey, could you carry the water this time? And I'm making all this up, but the point being is when we think about just simple life moments, it's filled with all these different contingent events. We talk about God being utterly sovereign. That God is the king of all the universe. That he created the heavens and the earth. And that everything happens according to his design. What does that take? It means that he's all powerful. Jesus insists, and 
maybe explaining this easily, that God is able to do all things, that all things are possible for God. Matthew 19, verse 26. Or in the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, verse 17, that nothing is too hard for him. When it comes to the details of life, we're told in Matthew chapter 6 that his in-controlledness extends to the mighty movements of the stars in heaven. Hence what we are talking about with the end times in Mark chapter 13. Or even in Matthew chapter 6, the fall of a sparrow. Or the exact count of the hairs on your head at any given time. Which as I understand, changes over time. But think about all of that. Think about all the events in your life that have all many, so many details. Think about all the steps that it took to get you here today. And I'm talking about just a church this morning and also your life that shaped your personality, that shaped the choices that you even make. So many details come in. Maybe most interestingly, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. We're told that if you throw a pair of dice, whatever number comes up is the determination of God. The point here that the prophet, or well, I guess the prophet, he wrote the scripture the person who wrote the proverb, the point there is made is that while things appear to be chance to us, nothing is actually a chance occurrence. Everything happens according to God's plan. The biblical authors in Ecclesiastes understand that the water cycle happens as as the course of a natural law. That there's a cycle of things, and yet they choose to always speak. Not as rain coming due to this water cycle, but because the Lord sends the rain. And that's because God is the ultimate actor behind things. All things happen because God has determined it to to happen, and yet there's a sense in which God uses means. And God sometimes uses means such as dice, people rolling dice to make their decisions. Sometimes people use their wisdom and intuition or lack thereof. Or sometimes things just appear just chaotic to us. God can use means or not use means, but he determines all things. In the words of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11... That God works out everything in conformity to his purpose and will. What this is to say is that when things happen, every Christian has this intuition that there's purpose to life. Scott mentioned it, that everything works out. Even in the chaos of our life, we understand that God has a plan. But what is that plan? How did Jesus know the future? Did Jesus, was he just given a telescope into the future? Seeing what choices people would make? 
and that's how it happened? Is God is just predicting because he can see what is going to happen in the future, but God's really not the one who's in control of it? Or do things happen because God determined it to happen? Prophecy is possible because God said, I am going to do something. I'm going to determine and make sure it happens. And this is most clear and most evident in things like the crucifixion. Where we see Jesus being prophesied way before he was born, 700 years at least, that he would die on the cross, being crucified, before crucifixion ever happened or occurred. And when we read things like this, we are asking ourselves the question, basically, is, is God looking to the future when the cross would be invented and that Jesus would be crucified? Or did God determine it to happen? And it's all happening as a result of God's plan. Well, we can continue. It seems like it's all the details of life, but it goes even farther. God predestines not just all the details of life, but it includes people. It even includes his betrayal. Did you catch that, what was said? Jesus really disrupted this dinner party. Passover was people's favorite meal to celebrate. It was done in family units. You would gather around the table. Table was a lot lower than ours with seat cushions that would have been gathered by the disciples in a U-shape around that table. You would recline as, in other words, kind of laying down on that cushion with your face near the table, with your feet behind you. Close enough that John the Baptist could lean over and rest his head on Jesus' bosom, shoulder, chest. They were sitting in close proximity, eating, enjoying family fellowship, eating bitter herbs, unleavened bread, a Passover lamb. We're going to look at the actual celebration of the Passover next week. But in the middle of this meal, Jesus drops a bombshell that disrupts everything. When evening came, and they're reclining at the table, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, who is eating with me. Jesus is not surprised by Judas's just chance happenstance to see a woman giving money to, to uh, breaking a jar of perfume that was worth 300, well, we'll say a year's salary, and pouring it on Jesus's head getting perturbed and going off to the Pharisees and selling Jesus, basically, for a price. Jesus had already, in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, told them that he would be betrayed. The new revelation here to them, the news, is that it would be one of them. Imagine what it would be like to be Judas in this moment. He found out. His heart start racing. But because this was such an unexpected bombshell to them, 
The disciples were sorrowful. They didn't want Jesus to die. They'd already tried to dissuade him as much as possible to not go to Jerusalem, to avoid dying at any cost. And they started asking themselves, referring to one another, is it I? And that question there is worded in the ESV is a little, um, or at least in my reading, is a little misconstrued. Because when I see, is it I? My intuition here is that they're questioning themselves, like, did, am I going to be the one who betrays Jesus? But that's actually not what they're asking. The word no is in their word. It's meti ego. They're asking themselves, it's not me, is it? It's not I. They're dumbfounded. Everyone starts asking and saying, I'm not going to do it, am I? I'm not going to. I'm not going to betray you. They have no idea who's going to betray them, but they know it's not them. I'm not going to be the one who does it. And Judas kind of slithers his way and finds a way out. We're told in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27, 26 and 27, it's not I, is it? And Jesus responds to him separately and says, you are the one who said it. Judas was not able to slither out from Jesus' perspective, and neither was Jesus surprised. Why is that? It's because when we think about prophecy, when we think about all the different details of life, the uncomfortable truth is that extends to individuals, that extends to the free choices of human beings with their own motivations, making decisions that are to benefit themselves. We're told in Isaiah chapter 10, as a good study, uh, case and study of this, Isaiah chapter 10, they're told, God tells the nations that they are simply tools in his hands to accomplish his judgment on his people who are living in rebellion. But Isaiah goes on from that to say that that's not the way the nations see it. A king who's coming into the land to conquer Israel wants their wealth, wants their money. That's why they're doing it. And they think they conquer that nation as a result of their own strategic ingenuity. And God says in Isaiah chapter 10 that due to their hubris, due to the, all their evil deeds, due to their thinking that they're able to do this in their own strength, in their own power, that God will turn around and punish them after he's finished using them as a tool in his hands. Maybe the most striking way we see this is in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 29. The church has been suffering persecution. Peter and John come and report what has happened, and they pray using the language of Psalm chapter 2, which is predicting Jesus and his death and his ascension to the throne of God, by the way. And he says that this, 
explaining Psalm chapter 2. He said that indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And we can go ahead and add to that list of conspirators against the king, Judas himself. Listen to what Peter says next, though. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Who put Jesus on the cross? Was it primarily Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles? Was it the people of Israel themselves? Was it the religious leadership? Or was it Judas? Who can we put the blame on? Or is it all of them together? Well, at a human level, it's all of them together, is it not? The reason why I'm standing here today in front of you is because I continue to breathe air. Because I ate food. Because I'm drinking water. That's why I'm here in front of you. But on another level, I'm here in front of you because God willed it. Because God is in control of all those minor details that lead up to that moment. What we're talking about here, the technical term, is called compatibilism. That there are, these are compatible truths. That God is sovereign. He's in control. Everything happens according to his plan. And at the same time, people have responsibility for their actions. They make choices based on their own motivations. The reality is, is that those motivations are also determined by God and are part of his plan. And I think we're told in a very helpful way in our confession in chapter 3 that everything happens, that God is in control in such a way that God is not the author of sin. He's not the one who can be attributed as he is the sinful agent. That God is in control in any way, and this is Westminster chapter 3, paragraph 1, that he is in control in a way that he does not do violence to the choices of human beings, of free agents. And he does not violate the liberty or, and this is more uh, philosophical language here, the contingency of second causes, causes. In other words, the reason why a rock drops or the rain falls is because of gravity at one level, secondarily. But first of all, because God determined it to happen. And God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is the one who determines all things. And he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, where he says, the one who's dipping bread into the dish with me is going to do this. Notice that Jesus doesn't actually give up Judas. He quotes a text of David's own betrayal by a close confidant and friend showing that the life of Jesus is patterned off of David and the betrayal he went through. It's also par par paralleled after and patterned after the life of Abraham, the life of Moses, the life of every Old Testament saint that's pointing forward to the work. All Jesus is really doing by his answer is not revealing Judas's identity, the betrayer's identity. He's just confirming the reality of it. 
And we're told in John, in his account, that he dismisses Judas, that he lets him go and says, do what you are going to do, do quickly. Why does, Judas, why does Jesus let Judas go? Because it's God's plan that Jesus would be betrayed by his close friends. When we think of and we hear of God's absolute sovereignty over everything, including just the small, minor details of our life and even our decisions, our gut response is to think, does that mean we're just robots? Does that mean I'm just happening and working according to my predetermined program to a predetermined end? No, we're not robots. And we don't just operate according to our programming in the sense of every choice we have is absolutely determined. As Roman, or Romans chapter 9 explains, we are like a pot. God shapes us and shapes our future. But not in such a way as removing our choices. I drank coffee this morning and probably a little bit more than I should have because I wanted to. That's why. The reason why Judas betrayed Jesus is because he wanted to. But in that last fill in the blank there, God predestines everything in accordance with God's own word. Jesus' reasoning for this happening is found in verse 21 where he says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is the point that makes us not fatalist. This is the point that makes us not just robots. Because God is the author of the future. And God is the same one who, yes, wrote the plan of history but also made you. And you function in his history. To say that both of these things are true, that we are responsible, making our own decisions, and God makes decisions, and his plans are the ones that win out in the end, to say that this is compatibilism doesn't explain the how. And this is where we have to be careful as Christians to stop talking where God stops talking. Deuteronomy 29, 29, a great Bible verse to remember. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And part of what is revealed is God's plan of redemption through a man who he would send to suffer and die on the cross. That's part of what has been revealed. And it was revealed to Jesus according to the word of God. And Jesus lived in submission to that word at all points in life. You know how good news this is? How good of news this is? Jesus was giving a human nature, making real choices, and Jesus voluntarily submitted to God's will for his life to be brutally murdered. For the salvation of sinners. Do you know why we have a hope after death 
of not going to hell? It's because Jesus determined to save you. It's because the Father determined to send His Son. It's because the Holy Spirit determines daily to work faith in us and giving us eyes to see and behold God's glory, His goodness. And when God leaves us to ourselves to make our own choices, you know what we choose? We choose the same thing Judas chooses, which is to live for our own pleasure, to seek our own power, to maybe survive and just not die at the expense of everything else. Everything's happening according to God's word. Jesus does not reveal Judas's identity so he can do what was commissioned to him to do. Yes, John chapter 13 says at this moment, Satan entered into him and he left. This teaches us a little bit about something about sin. You see, there was a point in Judas's life that he probably, that he was at a certain point, let me get my thoughts straight here. There's a point in which G Judas himself simply just would not repent. He refused to turn to God. But there came a point in Judas's life that it went from he would not repent to he could not repent. There was a point in Judas's life where there was a point of no return. There was a gut punch for all the disciples when they heard he would be betrayed by one of them. That gut punch probably hit deepest with Judas. Even when I play a game, I don't know if you heard this, millennials play this game a lot called, uh, it's like werewolf or mafia. It's this game in which there's this group of people and someone's selected beforehand by chance that one person's going to be the bad guy and everyone else is the good guys. And the good guy's goal is to figure out who's the bad guy. And even playing that game, I feel my heart racing like Edgar Allan Poe's convict who lets someone into their house, the police over, and they're just drinking coffee. They're just over visiting. They don't know what's going on. But the guilt starts making my heart race. We start thinking in our minds, they know what I'm up to. They, they get it. Even though in the minds of the people around us, they have no idea. Judas had guilt for what he did. He felt shame. And this was a moment in which Judas could have turned. Judas at this moment could have said, Jesus, you figured it out. The game is up. You found me. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. But Judas would not. And once he left, Satan entered him. The way the Bible describes this is the hardness of heart that happens. The, the balance between Pharaoh and God in the book of Exodus. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, I'm going to harden God, Pharaoh's heart. 
so that he will not listen. And then Pharaoh, after he listens to Moses, it says he hardened his own heart against God, refusing to submit. Both things are true. And there's a point in which, as we continue in our sin, sometimes we sin and get entrapped, entangled in, in, in such a way we think we could just have a taste of sin. We could just dip into it for a second and then come out and be recovered. But the reality is, is when we make that conscious choice to do what we ought, know we ought not to do, we are hardening our conscience. We are weakening the convicting power. And at one point, at some point, if we continue in sin, knowing what you're doing, I can promise you, your heart will be hardened. And you'll come to the point where, humanly speaking, you cannot repent. This is why the Bible warns us, gives us explicit warnings to make your calling and election sure. To humble yourselves before a mighty God that he will forgive and flee sin, flee temptation. But this was not simply just a warning to Judas. It was also a threat. That word woe in English doesn't really communicate woe anymore. If I say woe is me, what am I saying? I'm saying woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm destitute. I have no hope. I'm hopeless. I'm doomed. That's what Jesus said of this man. And he said that woe to the man who, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for, him, for that man if he had not been born. What does this assume? This assumes that something's going to happen to you after you die. This assumes that God will bring every thought, word, and deed into judgment. And we should pity Judas. Because he committed the worst of sins. He betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, who he knew was innocent. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he had the power to raise the dead back to life. And yet he betrayed him. The reality is, is I would be remiss if I did not warn the people in this room. I can't see your heart, but maybe you are like Edgar Allan Poe. You're like the story of the raven. You know your own heart. And speaking to you right now, you feel your heart beating out of your chest. I can assure you, I don't see your heart. I don't know what's going on. But God knows. And it does not escape his notice. And hearing this right now is God's mercy and God's grace to you. Don't miss this moment. Don't let it pass by you and continue on in your sin. Turn from it to the Savior who will forgive you, who will save you before it is too late. 
you know, the good news is, and every time I think about this, maybe your mind goes to the same place as mine. The story of Joseph, when he's sold into slavery. Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, when he's responding to his brothers, is something amazing. Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Notice that he does not say, he does not picture his enslavement and all the terrible things and sufferings he went through his life as an event due to human wickedness, human ingenuity, even though he does acknowledge it. Ultimately, he attributes it to God's intention that brought forth the good. He does not imagine God as somehow making do with the hand that's dealt him. He does not picture God as saying, you know, I had a fine plan. I wanted to send Joseph on a fine escort with no suffering. God had a plan to make sure Judas, uh, Judas, Joseph would not suffer, would ride in on a chariot, and would come to a position of power that Pharaoh would recognize and would result in the salvation of many people. But those brothers messed it up. And I had to work with the hand I dealt with, and instead I maneuvered around and made sure all the different situations he got into he ended up in that position of authority. You know, God could have worked that way, maybe. But that's not what we're told. What we're told is, is the plans and intentions of wicked, evil men to enslave their brother and get rid of them was the same plan, the same moment, the same mechanism which God intended to put Joseph in that place, in that authority. And this is most clearly seen in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Maybe this is the other place our minds should always go. That Peter, a chap, two chapters earlier from chapter 4, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, whom you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. God works out all things for good of those who God loves and has called according to his purposes. And it's not just by accident. And the main thing that should provoke in our hearts is absolute peace that Scott mentioned. That God will work out all things in the end. It should assure us of God's love. If we hear this, if we hear God's word and find ourselves believing, you know, that's God's electing love. That's the work of the Holy Spirit determining to save you. And if you feel remorse and you feel your heart being out of your chest, now is the day to take advantage of the opportunity God holds out to you. And we all know that if you do not take up that opportunity, or if you're like Judas and you betray what the knowledge that you know to be true, you know deep down you can't blame God. 
but you can only blame yourself. And as Jesus says, that's a fearful thing. This should produce in us the fear of the Lord. Matthew 10 tells us, Do not fear him who can kill the body only, but fear the living God who can kill both body and soul in hell forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus died according to your plan. Lord, as we read the Bible, the longer we become more and more antiquated, or rather, uh, understand it, we see that all of Scripture pointed to Jesus and his death. Whether we're reading Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Zechariah chapter 6, 9, 12, or 13, we see your plan is at work. And Lord, we confess that our contribution and our sole contribution to our salvation is our sin, our need. But yours is all of it. That our salvation is by grace alone from beginning to end. And Lord, I pray that as we read your word, just as Jesus' reading of your word was not hypothetical, but that he believed and obeyed it without compromise, Lord, I pray that we too would believe your word without compromise. That the same spirit who inspired scripture, the same spirit who strengthened Jesus to understand and obey the scriptures, that that same spirit would be in us, given to us, that we might understand and believe and obey all the things that is written in it that your Holy Spirit would fill us even now to convince us of your sin and your righteousness. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand.